Well, for a couple weeks, we have been in a new message series called What God Treasures, and that goes right along with our theme for the year here at the church, which is treasuring what God treasures. And uh, this series really seeks to kind of answer that implied question. Well, if we're going to treasure what God treasures, then what does he treasure? What is it that we should be going after? What should we be treasuring? And we started off the series by talking about the fact that God treasures his word, that he elevates his word even to the point of, of his name. And he desires for his word to be honored and loved as much as his name is. And, and we then talked about that it's not just enough to know and treasure his word, that we need to obey his word. We need to apply his word. And that if you really are going to treasure his word, you're going to treasure obedience to his word, which he treasures. He treasures obedience to his word. And we're told in James to not just be hearers of the word only, but to be what? Doers, doers of it also. And we hear these things and we know these things, but the problem is in the doing of both, right? We hear that we're supposed to treasure God's word. We'll agree with that. We'll say amen. We know we're supposed to. We know we're supposed to do something about it. We're supposed to apply it to our lives. We're supposed to obey it, practice it. We agree with that. But there's a difference in all of our lives and a tension and a struggle that we all feel between knowing those things and knowing we're supposed to and then actually doing it, following through. We fail often to treasure God's word the way we should. We all do. We fail often to obey his word and to treasure obedience to his word the way we should. We all do. We know it, and I even think that we have a desire most of the time to do those things. If you're a believer in Christ, something that I know about you is that you want to treasure God's word, and you want to treasure it more and more and more all the time. You want to obey his word. You have a desire to do that. If you're a believer in Christ, I know that's true of you. But what is also true of you is true of me, and that's the failure to do those things. That's that despite the want, what ends up happening many times, day in, day out, in our lives, is that we still unbelievably choose that which is sinful in the sight of God. Though we know all that he's done for us, we believe the gospel, we know that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, and we know that that applies to us, that we're sinners in need of what Jesus did, and we read in, in Scripture all that went into his great sacrifice for us, and we marvel at it, and we say, thank you, Jesus, and you know, we, we sing the right songs, and we we pray to know him more and to love him more. And then we still turn around and make choice after choice after choice that's still sinful. We still choose sin over him. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Unbelievable how easy it is for us to do that. And because of the fact that we, we fail so often to treasure God's word the way we should and to, to treasure obedience to his word the way we should, that's why we are all 
every one of us in great need, in constant need, of the other thing that God treasures, which is repentance. We're all in need of continual repentance. And repentance, we need to understand, first of all, that that involves turning to Christ to begin with. That involves coming to the point of realizing that apart from Jesus Christ and apart from from applying his work on the cross for you personally, apart from that, you have no hope. It's coming to that point of realizing it. It's understanding and feeling your need for the Savior. It's not just knowing about Jesus. It's not knowing just knowing that there is a Savior. It's not seeing him as the Savior of the world in general. It's seeing him as your Savior. And so repentance, first of all, involves turning to Jesus for salvation apart from any other means of salvation that you go after. It's turning from your sin and from standing in the place of being under God's judgment and wrath. It's turning away from that and turning to Jesus, embracing him and all that he has to offer you as the Lord and Savior of your life. That's the first aspect of repentance. But after that... And beyond that, what does it involve? What's it look like? What's it mean? So often, repentance is viewed in far too simplistic ways. It's kind of understood as, as just being sorry or just saying sorry. And sometimes people adopt the mindset and the perspective that you know all too well if you're a parent or a teacher of children You know that when there's conflict between kids, whether it's your own children or those you're teaching, there's a conflict, there's an issue, and inevitably you as a parent or you as a teacher say, okay, now tell them you're sorry, you need to apologize. And most of the time, what happens in that setting is it's not the most sincere of apologies, is it? It's sorry, or I'm sorry, or yeah, sorry, something like that. I mean, it's just like, okay, I know I'm supposed to do this. I have the pressure of, of my parent or my teacher standing over me, and I know that I'm supposed to, so I'm just going to say it. Um, I mean, in our, in our home, the, on the rare occasion that my children don't get along, yeah, um, you know, there's times where a rude comment or an insult or even a, a physical expression of the opposite of love takes place. And we will do the same thing every other parent does. We'll say, now you need to tell them you're sorry. And we'll wait. Tell them you're sorry. And then they say it. And <laughs> it's like, oh, that makes it all better, right? It's like they'll say it to appease mom and dad. And we even have to remind them three or four times. But they're still saying sorry. So, all right, we can move on now. And often that's the approach we take to repentance, even before God. You know, like as a Christian, we'll be confronted with the fact that we have amazingly, foolishly, tragically still chosen sin for the millionth time. We're convicted of that by the Holy Spirit or or by his word or by a message maybe. And the Holy Spirit says, yeah, that's you. You did this. You, You weren't in line with my word. You weren't in line with my will for your life. There's sin in your life, and I'm, I'm letting you know about it. So we'll know that, we'll feel that. And often, the extent of our response, the extent of our repentance, 
is very similar to what I just told you and what you know in your own families. It's, sorry, God. I'm sorry. Yeah, messed up again. I'm sorry. Good, That's, that's taken care of. You know, and often that's how we view repentance. And sometimes, to be fair, it goes beyond that. And, and I, I know that in some of your lives, it's not that callous that um, when you're confronted over sin, uh, you do feel deeply sorry, genuinely sorry. We're, I mean, talking about remorse, like you feel that. And I, I give you that. And that's a good thing. Like actually being weighed down by your failing of the Lord. When your sin grips you so much that you are devastated by it. And, and you are genuinely remorseful. It's not just, oh, I'm sorry, God, I messed up again. It's, it does wreck you. And that's a good thing. Remorse, genuine remorse, is, is part of repentance. But it's not all of Repentance. And if the farthest we go in our process of repentance is remorse, then we're still missing the point. And we're not understanding it fully or properly or fully repenting at all. It's just getting to the first part of it. It's actually what leads to repentance. That feeling of guilt over sin that you should have as a believer, that convicting work of the Spirit which then leads to genuine remorse and true remorse where, where you are broken over your sin. That's all necessary, but that's just what leads you to the actual act of repentance. Because what repentance is, is much more than just remorse. Repentance is more than remorse. It's a reverse in course. Repentance is more than remorse. It's a total reverse in course. You're, you're going one way, you're thinking one way, you're doing one thing, and it's, it's this direction, and that direction is nothing but sin after sin after sin. The direction you're headed in thought, in word, or in deed is taking you away from God and toward sin, toward everything that is contrary to him, toward everything that he is opposed to, out of alignment with his word, out of alignment with his will. You're going on that way. You're choosing to do something that he considers to be sin and an offense against him. So repentance in that Context is not just, oh, I'm sorry that, that I've done this sin again. I'm, I'm sorry that I'm doing what is contrary to you, God, to your word, to your will. Messed up again. It's, it's not just that. It's recognizing you're going away from him. You're doing the exact opposite of what he would have you to do. Your, your character in that moment of sin is totally opposite of the character of God. And it's recognizing that, putting on the brakes of your life, reversing completely and going back toward all that he is. And it's abandoning whatever the allure of that sin choice is. It's abandoning it fully. It's rejecting it. It's saying, this cannot and it will not hold my affection. This will not provide fulfillment. This will not provide satisfaction. This will not bring me joy. And this is doing nothing but grieving the heart of God who gave 
the one that occupied first place in his heart, his son, he gave him for me, and he is worth more than me continuing on this path of sin. The one who gave me everything deserves more than me continuing on this path. So I'm going to stop, and I'm going to reverse, and I'm going to go towards him and all he is. That's what repentance actually involves. It's much more than just remorse, although that's part of it. It's a reverse in course. You know, when um, Leanne and I were were first married on our honeymoon, uh, we went to Florida and we went to Fort Lauderdale and the Boca Raton area, went to the Keys, did all that. It was great. It was fun. But we were so stinking young and naive. It was unbelievable. You know, we couldn't even rent a car. Weren't even allowed to rent a car. She was, she was 19 years old. And I was 20. That's when we got married. Ridiculous. We say all the time to our, our precious princesses when they say, well, you know, you and mommy or you and daddy got married when she was just 19. We say, yeah, that was us. That's not going to be you. So when we went on our honeymoon... So naive that we didn't even know how to make scrambled eggs. Literally. Yes, we hang our heads in shame. But we called parents on our honeymoon to ask what we needed to do to make scrambled eggs. And since we couldn't rent a car, we wanted to explore the area, you know? I mean, here we were in this beautiful tropical paradise, and we wanted to explore, but we couldn't rent a car. Uh, What they did allow us to rent, though, was like this dune buggy scooter thing. It's kind of like a bicycle with plastic enclosure around it. And um, so they allowed us to rent that. So we were like, all right, good, we're good, we'll go explore. And um, we decided we wanted to, to go to a downtown area, and uh, we, we got directions. This was before smartphones, so we had to print out MapQuest paper directions, you know, on how to get to this spot. And it, uh, it didn't take into account that we weren't driving an actual automobile, So the directions that it it gave us was to get on a major four-lane. And uh, this major four-lane was actually over water, because it's Florida, right? So it was over a drawbridge, a real-life drawbridge. So here we are, we're driving along, and all of a sudden traffic's picking up, and Leanne's like, what is this road? And I'm like, I don't know. It just told us to go on this road. All of a sudden, me, me, there's a semi like coming behind us. And we're in this little thing. And the semi is bearing, blaring on the horn. Yeah, there it is. There it is. That's our sweet ride. The blue one, not the, not the gold car next to it. The little blue thing. That's us. Man, we had trouble finding a parking space that would fit it. But that was us. And so here we are on this major road, semis blaring, we're, they're all, cars are all around us beeping, they're looking at us, my wife's just shrinking down, if she can shrink any lower, I mean, any lower she'd be on the road, but she's shrinking down as much as she can, and we're on, and then all of a sudden, we hear a bigger horn, which is the, the um, like the drawbridge captain si- sounding his horn, letting us know the drawbridge is about to go up. Because a boat's about to come through. So all of a sudden we, we had to like mash on what brakes we had. And so the bridge comes up and we're just at the bottom of it. So we're tilted a little bit in this little blue thing. And we're, we're really just freaking out. 
So we wait and we wait. The boat passes. Finally, the bridge comes down and it's a normal road again. And we just we get in in the lane that takes as fastest as possible to get off this thing into where we need to go. And so we pull off into that little parking lot and we're just like, okay. And then we decided, I decided to go into this really high end, high class um, art museum type thing, gallery. And we're walking in. I'm drenched in sweat. Um, poor Leanne is, is like red as can be from being sunburned from this open thing. And, and we decide um, to very quickly find a different route back to our hotel. And we wanted to get there as fast as possible to the safety and the comfort of our hotel room because that was traumatic. You know, we didn't want to go that same way again. Not at all. We had enough of, of the four lane with the semis and the drawbridge and all of it in that little tiny thing. So we reversed course really quick and we never went that route again the rest of our time there. That's exactly the type of approach we need to all take towards sin. We need to say, there's nothing good that can come from this. There's nothing safe about this. This is not going to bring fulfillment. This is going to bring the total opposite. In fact, if I keep on this route, I may very well come to my end really quickly because that's what sin does. Sin has only the power to disrupt and destroy. Nothing good will come from it. It's not ever going to be exciting enough to keep us on the road going the direction we are if we're going the direction towards sin. And we need to determine that we're going to reverse course no matter how long it may take us, no matter how bumpy that other route might be. Yeah, it might seem smooth for a while, the the road, the pathway towards sin and away from God. Uh, In our flesh, it might seem like this is really a good road to be on, but I guarantee from personal experience, and you, you would agree too, many of you who have gone through a lot and you've seen the destruction that sin causes, you will admit what I admit, which is that the route opposite of sin, the reverse course of that, the road toward righteousness, the road toward God and his will for your life, it's not always going to be smooth. In fact, it's guaranteed not to be. There's going to be great bumps. There's going to be holes in the road. There's going to be treacherous things that come along that path. But... Ultimately, it is always going to be for your good to stay on that path. And it's always what's going to bring the most fulfillment, the most peace, the most joy, the most hope. It's what's going to preserve your life. And we need to remember that and keep that in mind. So if repentance is a drastic reverse in course, if that's really what it is, then the question we have to ask ourselves is, what does that involve? What does it include? What needs to be a part of a repentant heart? Uh, what is that going to look like in my life? If I need to have genuine repentance, which is more than just remorse, and it's a, a reverse in course, then what's that reversal look like? What is that going to have to include uh, for us as believers? And thankfully, God in his word has given us uh, a blueprint for that uh, in Psalm 51. And so I'm not going to look through the whole psalm. Uh, it's a great, great psalm, and it's worthy of memorizing the entire thing. Uh, There's just so much goodness here, so much truth. But I just want to highlight a few verses for us to focus on together today as it relates to repentance and and what that actually includes, what that looks like for us. This uh, psalm was written by David uh, after he had committed the horrible sin with Bathsheba, uh, where he saw Bathsheba 
uh, bathing on the rooftop and he just let lust take over. He had to have her. He used his position as king to call for her. He slept with her, sent her on her way because that, you know, that itch was scratched. And she ends up telling him that she's pregnant. Dun, dun, dun. Right? And he quickly learns that she is the wife of someone he knows very well, which he, he should have known already and probably did, um, Uriah the Hittite. Not only was it his personal friend, but he was one of David's most trusted advisors and faithful soldiers. He was one of the mighty men of David. He was kind of like the special forces of the king. This was just a really important guy, Uriah. That was the husband of Bathsheba. When he figures out that Uriah isn't going to compromise his integrity as a soldier and his service on the battlefield by just coming home and taking it easy and enjoying his wife, he even tried to get him drunk. That didn't work. He decides, all right, I've just got to get rid of Uriah. I've just got to get him out of the picture. So he has him killed by putting him in the front line where the battle is the fiercest. So sure enough, Uriah dies And after the mourning period is over, he sends for Bathsheba. She becomes his wife, but that doesn't mean the consequences are just forgotten. That doesn't mean the sin is forgotten. He's confronted by the sin. He acknowledges it. He admits it. And this is what he pens as a result of that. This is his incredible, honest, powerful, beautiful prayer and psalm of repentance. Psalm 51, verse 1. David says this, Be gracious to me, God. According to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. The first aspect of genuine repentance that we all need to employ as believers is understanding our need for grace. Understanding our need for grace. We need to understand that before a holy, perfect God, that there is nothing we could ever do that could deserve his favor on our lives. There's nothing we could ever do to earn his goodness. And certainly when it comes to doing what is sinful in his sight, there is nothing that is in us that we could say or do to just make him turn the other way and forget about our sinfulness. He's too holy for that. And because God is just, he can't just ignore sin. He has to deal with it. He has to punish it. And so what we are in need of, if we have any hope, is not justice, but grace. It's not getting what we deserve. And it's acknowledging that before God. Now for us as believers in Christ, we directly attach that grace to what Jesus did on the cross. We acknowledge that the justice for our sin was served. But it was served on Jesus and with him in our place on our behalf. And because justice was served, we now have access to grace. And so part of our repentance is acknowledging, God, I am a sinner before you. Even as one who is in Christ, I am still a sinner before you. I have still chosen what is sinful in your sight. I am still bent toward this. And if I choose sin, I am in need of grace. God, be gracious to me. Knowing the whole time 
that because of Christ's sacrifice, I have that which I need. I have that which I seek. But it doesn't diminish our desperate need for grace. So be gracious to me, O God, is a fitting and needed statement from all of us toward God in our process of repentance. And notice that it's not according to any other person or outside thing that this, this grace and this, this love that we're asking for and that we're needing for, it's tied directly to, to God. The measure of love and the measure of grace that we need is tied directly to him and it's found in him and it's what only he can provide according to your faithful love, David says. According to your abundant compassion, which is going to exceed any other human example of love and compassion. Blot out my rebellion, he says. Completely wash away my guilt that he feels. Remember, guilt is something that's good. It's not a bad thing to feel guilty. The thing we have to do with that guilt, though, is use that to drive us toward repentance, not just wallow in the guilt. That's where guilt becomes bad. That's where guilt ceases to be what it's meant to do, which is to drive us toward God and toward repentance. We don't stay in the guilt. We allow it to drive us toward what we need to do. Completely wash away my guilt, David says, and cleanse me from my sin. It's like what 1 John 1.9 says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He, he removes our iniquity from us. He takes our trespass off of us and then he cleans us up from the effects of it. Verse three, David says this, for I am conscious, I'm, I'm fully aware of my rebellion, which is what every sin is. No matter what the sin is, every sin is rebellion against a holy God. And he says, I'm aware of that. I'm conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. I can't get away from it. I can't hide it. I can't ignore it. It's right in front of my face. It's there all the time. I know full well what I've done. I've sinned against you, God. See, there's no excuses here. There's no no justification of his sin, which we so often try to do. Yeah, I know I sinned, but... I did wrong, but I failed you, God, but see, it's like this. The reason I did that is so often we put ourselves right back in the place that Adam and Eve were at the very beginning. Remember when when God came and he called them on their sin? He confronted them. Where are you, Adam? Where are you? Oh, I was hiding because I was naked. Oh, really? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten? From the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Well, yeah, but, but it was this woman you gave me, see? Okay, I'll play along. Eve, what is this you've done? Oh, but yeah, yeah, I, I did give the fruit to Adam and he ate, but it's this serpent. See, we do that over and over again in our lives. We justify. We say, yes, I sinned, I acknowledge that, but it's because of... No, there's no justification present in David's prayer here. And my friend, if we're truly repentant, there can be no justification for our sin in in our prayers, in our attitudes, in our mindset. There's no excuse. There's no justification. It's just sin, period. It's rebellion, period. And it's acknowledging that fully. Verse 4, David says this. Against you, you alone... 
I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, wait a second. David didn't just sin against God, right? I mean, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He lied. He conspired for the murder of Uriah, so he really committed murder. I mean, that's certainly some, um, some sin against other people, right? And what David is saying here, he's not excusing the fact that his sin affected the other people like Bathsheba and Uriah and others, the palace guards and people he brought into his conspiracy. Uh, yeah, he sinned against other people, but what David is doing here, his perspective here, is absolutely right. What he's doing is he's saying, God, I am aware and I am realizing, I am understanding and I am admitting that above all else, above all other people that my sin has affected, and far beyond and far more serious than my sinning against people is the seriousness and the magnitude of the fact that I've sinned against you. And we need to have the same mindset. That our sin is first and foremost a sin against God, against his holiness, against his goodness, against all the love that he has lavished on us, against the work of Christ on our behalf. Every time we choose sin instead of righteousness, every time we choose self and sin over him, we're saying to God, you are not enough. You're not enough in my life. You're not enough to hold my loyalty. You're not enough to hold my affection. You're not enough to hold my devotion. You're not enough to bring fulfillment. You're not enough to bring satisfaction. You're not enough to keep joy in my life. You're not enough to give me peace. You're not enough to give me hope. I'm going to look elsewhere. Every time we sin, that's what we're communicating. And so when that happens and we're confronted with that and we seek to repent, we have to first acknowledge that above any other example of sin against someone else in our lives, while that's true, and we have to deal with that as well, that first and the most serious in our minds and our hearts must be our sin against God. Against you and you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. And then he says in the second part of this verse, so you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. There it is again, no excuse, no justification. God, I'm not giving you any excuse. I'm not trying to explain myself away. I'm just saying you are right when you're calling me out on this sin. You are blameless. I'm the one that's to blame, period. But he doesn't just stay there. He understands that he, he's got to move forward from this. And if he's going to move forward from this sin, the only hope he has is found in God, the one he sinned against, the one he's asking for grace from, which he knows he will receive. He knows that the only hope to go forward and to be different, the only hope he has to truly reverse course from this sin is found in God. And the same must be realized by us. Look at what David says in verse 10 and verse 12. Verse 10, God, create a clean heart for me. I can't do it on my own. God, what is needed in my heart, this change, this cleansing of my heart, it, it's got to come from you. I can't do it. I'm not powerful enough. I'm utterly dependent on you for this. Create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 12, restore the joy 
of your salvation to me. See, sin always robs us of our joy. Always. Sin cannot destroy your relationship with God if you're in Christ. That's secure forever. But sin can and does rob you of your joy in that salvation. Sin can and does affect the relationship. It doesn't destroy it, but it affects it. That's why Satan is always coming at us, tempting us towards sin. He knows he can't take your salvation, and he can't take your security in Christ, but he can take the focus of your joy and your search for joy. He can derail it into other things. That's what he does with sin. And any time that happens, any time that happens, we need a renewal and a restoration of our joy. And that's why God treasures repentance. Because sin always damages that relationship, and repentance is always what restores and repairs it. That's why he's calling us to repentance. That's what David is acknowledging here. God, I need a restoration to take place. I need a renewal here. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me. Hold me up. Keep me going. By giving me a willing spirit, a spirit that is willing to seek you, a a spirit that is willing to pursue you and not not sin, a a spirit that is willing to go after righteousness and and not go after sin. God, this is going to have to come from you, David says. I've demonstrated that if left on my own, even though I'm yours, I'm still going to pursue sin apart from your work in me. That's what needs to be in our hearts and and in our minds. That As part of our repentance, we need to say, God, I am yours, and I am yours in Christ, and I know that. I know I'm secure with you because of your Son, but I also know that while I am in this flesh, while I'm on this earth in this life, I am still prone to sin. And the flesh is indeed weak, even though my spirit is willing. We need to say what Paul said in Romans 7, which we can all identify with. I know to do good, and I want to do good. I want to chase after and pursue and live out righteousness and holiness and all that is according to God's word. I want to be in his will. I desire that. I love God's word, and I love to do what is right in his sight. But I find this law at work within me, like the law of gravity that comes crashing down on me, weighing me down, that the good I want to do, I don't do. And the evil I hate to do, I end up doing. And he goes back and forth in Romans 7. I want to do good, I don't do it. I don't want to do evil, but I end up doing it. And you can see the tension in his life, and you can see him just kind of going crazy, and he says, oh, what am I going to do? What a wretched man I am. And this is, this is Paul, super apostle, saying this. He's already planted all these churches. He's already written so much of the New Testament as we know it today. And he still struggles with that crazy back and forth of flesh versus spirit. And at the end of, of this rant, he says, But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. There's the answer. There's my hope. There's my victory. There's my grace. There's my ability to keep going forward. 
And that's what we have to say too. It's really the same as what David is saying here. God, I have sinned against you. I've done this evil in your sight. I have no excuse, no justification. You're right when you call me on this. I've sinned against you and you alone far more than my sin against other people. Please cleanse me of this. Remove this from my life. But don't just remove this sin from me. Also, please renew my mind. Renew my heart. Restore the right spirit within me. Restore a steadfast spirit. Give me a willing spirit that can go forward with and for you. That's what needs to be the cry of our heart as well. God, this has to be from you. If I have any hope of going forward, it's got to be from you. If I have any hope of continuing on, in the course of righteousness, it's you that must do it. I'm totally dependent on you, God. That's what needs to be on our lips and in our heart as well. See, it's not just about reversing course, repentance. It's not just about stopping what is wrong, stopping the, the breaking of the laws of God, stopping to, you know, to choose those things, and then just turning around and and starting to obey the rules, starting to do what is right. It's more than that. Repentance is the reversing, of course, from going away from God and all that he is and turning and going back towards him and all that he is. See, it's all about our relationship with him as everything in life is. All that we do as believers is about God and our relationship to him. And with him. And that's what repentance really is all about. That reverse, of course, please don't ever think of it as just related to rules and the law and doing what is wrong here and stopping that and starting to just do all that is right. It, it's, it's just more than that. Look beyond it, look to God and know that it's about Him. You've sinned against Him, you've left Him in that sin. Now you're going toward him and his holiness and your, your choosing righteousness is all out of love for him, knowing all that he's done for you. It's all motivated by love. That's what repentance really is. It's all about love. It's loving God enough to stop sinning and start going toward him. It's, it's seeing your sin the same way he does. And it's being broken in your heart over knowing your sin broke his heart. And it's loving him enough to stop loving that sin. And you're going to love him more. That's what repentance involves. So, with all that in mind, the next and fitting question, there's really two questions I want to leave you with. It's not enough just to know this. We've got to do something about it. So, what what do we need to ask? What do we need to say to God in, in our own process of repentance? What needs to be on our heart? Um, what are the, some of the things that we need to do with this? Well, first, we need, to, we need to pray what is found in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. This is the prayer that should be on our hearts. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous or sinful way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. That's what we need to be praying 
continually. God, keep searching in my heart. Holy Spirit, keep searching my heart. Know my heart. See if there's anything in me that's an offense to you. See if there's any sin that I'm not aware of. Remove it from my life and lead me on the path, the road of righteousness for your sake. And as we're praying that, we need to ask some self-reflecting questions as well. We need to be asking things of ourselves. The first very important question is, where is this road taking me? What is this road that I'm on? This road that my thoughts are occupying, this thing I'm doing, this attitude that's in my heart, where is this taking me? Is, Is it taking me toward God, closer to him, or away from him? And if it's taking you away, then repentance is required. It's not just remorse, it's reversing course. The other question that we have to ask is how much do I hate this sin? And how much do I love God? Really? How much do I really hate this sin? Oh, I say I'm tired of it and I just wish I could stop doing this, but do you hate it? That's the question. That's the question I have to ask myself. Do I really hate this sin? And if I'm going to really hate it, if I really hate my sin, then I'm going to stop doing it. I'm going to leave it. Because if I hate sin, but I love God, then I should love him enough to leave the sin that I've been following, leave it in the dust, and just go hard after him. So how much do I hate the sin, and how much do I love God? That's the questions we have to ask. Repentance is far more than just remorse. It's a reversing course. And it's a, a reversing course that takes us to him, living for him, choosing him, loving him, not our sin. Let's pray. Father, the first aspect of repentance truly is coming to the realization of our need for your son. We have to acknowledge that first. And then once we have given our lives to your son, once we have committed ourselves to him, he does truly need to be first and foremost in our lives. But we're so prone to do the opposite. We're so prone to still fail him again and again. Even after all that he's done for us on the cross, even after all we know about that, we still can amazingly choose sin over him. And it's in those times, and it's continually true, that we need to repent. And that's definitely more than just, I'm sorry. It's even more than just saying, I'm sorry. It does involve a brokenness. It does involve the weight of guilt. But all of that is meant to drive us toward you. Not just to stay in that guilt and wallow in misery. It's to drive us towards accepting the grace that we all have if we're in Christ. It's what he has provided for us by his work on the cross. So, Father, for those of us who are in your Son, who are yours... Help us to keep embracing the grace that your son gave his life to give us. Help us to not stay in defeat. Help us to rise up and go forward because of grace. But Father, also help us please to live for you in response to that grace. As we are picked up by you and as we're cleansed, from our sin by you and and as we reverse our course away from sin and back toward you help us to to be motivated to keep living for you and to to not live for sin to keep rejecting 
sin and to keep embracing righteousness all out of a response of gratitude for grace, all out of love for you. Let all that we do be motivated by our love for you, knowing that we are eternally loved by you and the cost that it took to give us that love. Let that be our motivation for repentance. And Father, if there is anyone here that has not yet come to that first all-important step of, of repentance by, by turning from sin toward salvation, by acknowledging their need for the Savior, by committing their life to Him, I pray that, that today would be the day that happens, that, that they would experience that, that first and needed step in what repentance is, which is knowing Jesus as their Savior. Work in all of our hearts, I pray. May we be a, a church that repents as we need to, May we be families that, that show what repentance looks like with one another. May we be individuals that are people of repentance. In all of this, we will be doing what you treasure. And I pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.